But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you, as we always do, to join us here in this place this morning. And we trust that you are here with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Just so you know, and I want to be very clear about this, I did not almost get into a physical fight last week. It did not happen. After all, I'm 43 years old. I have a certain standing in the community. I understand how ridiculous it would be for me to get into a physical fight with someone. Plus, this person that I definitely did not almost get into a fight with exists for me only online. We've never even met. But you know, sometimes there are people that you can just envision yourself punching. And although I did not get into a physical fight last week, I did find myself briefly fantasizing about it. Now, perhaps I should state clearly that I have no plans to get into fights, and I confess the sinful desire and ask Jesus' forgiveness, but I suspect you know the feeling I mean. There's a person, or maybe a group, that has engendered the same kinds of feelings in you. You know who I mean. One of them. When the Blues Brothers play their big concert at the Palace Hotel at the end of the movie, they open the show with a rousing version of Everybody Needs Somebody to Love, an old song by Solomon Burke. But before they swing into the song, Elwood Blues, played by Dan Aykroyd, says this great little thing that brings a smile to my face every single time, something that I'm sure I've mentioned to you before. He says, please remember, people, that no matter who you are and what you do to live, thrive, and survive, there are still some things that make us all the same. You, me, them, everybody. And he does this little shrug when he says them. Them, yep, even them. And even though Elwood is certainly correct, and there are things that make us all the same things, in fact, that we're going to talk about in just a minute, we still spend a lot of time differentiating between us and them. And actually, if you'll permit me another quick movie reference, there's a tiny moment in Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction that hilariously illustrates the way we think about them. So Uma Thurman and John Travolta are having dinner, and they're looking for a topic of conversation. And eventually, John Travolta tells Uma Thurman that he's heard a rumor that her husband had a man thrown off a balcony for giving her a foot massage. And then they have this quick, funny exchange. Is that a fact, she says. No, he replies, it's not. It's just what I heard. Who told you this? She asks. And that's when he says it with a little smile. They. They talk a lot, don't they? Uma Thurman observes. And Travolta agrees. They certainly do. There's always a they, isn't there? 
They're the ones who talk. They're the ones who spread rumors. They're the ones, well, they're the ones who sin. We all have a they in our lives. Sometimes the easy ones are the opposing political party. Sometimes it's the opposite sex. Sometimes it's your parents' generation or, you know, your actual parents. Sometimes it's just the guy on Twitter that you think you might like to punch. There's always a they. And therefore, by definition, a division, a distinction, a divide between us and them. And we read a little bit about this kind of distinction, this divide in Ephesians this morning. Remember, Paul writes, that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You can see the division, Jews and Gentiles, the circumcision, the uncircumcision, the good, the bad, the heroes, the villains, us and them. And the Jews of Jesus' time were all about us and them. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, God's chosen people. That's sort of the ultimate us and them statement, isn't it? We're chosen and you're not. We're in and you're out. Now, don't get me wrong. The Jews were God's chosen people. He said so himself. But the Jews were also really good at letting people know that they were God's chosen people. I'm going to give you an example now, and when I wrote this sentence in the sermon, I almost laughed out loud. I can guarantee you, you've never heard the sentence I'm about to say in a sermon before. This is the first time ever. There was a really interesting section of my friend's doctoral dissertation, (laughs) but I'm serious. My friend's dissertation, which has the incredibly unwieldy title, like all dissertations do, God, Grace, and Righteousness in Wisdom of Solomon and Paul's Letter to the Romans, Texts in Conversation. The dissertation is about the different ways that two writers in the biblical period wrote about grace and righteousness. Because, see, it was a staple of Jewish literature at this time to run down a sort of history of sin and then lay it at the feet of Gentile idolaters. This is the way Jews wrote about the history of the world. For example, in this book, The Wisdom of Solomon, one of the books of the Apocrypha, the writer spends the 13th and 14th chapters bemoaning the state of the world and all of the Gentile idolatry in it. Here's just a couple quick quotes. They put their hope in dead things. They speak to that which has no life. They erred in the knowledge of God. They, they, they is the theme of these chapters. And if you read on into the 15th chapter of wisdom, you see that Israel felt themselves to be quite different. We will not sin, knowing we are counted thine. And neither did the mischievous invention of men deceive us. You can see the clear distinction here. Us. And them, we're good, they're bad. 
And of course, you and I are not immune to this. We feel ourselves to be different too, separate, set apart. We may not be perfect, we would probably admit, but at least we're better than so-and-so. Certainly better than that guy on Twitter, right? And we'd never say such a thing out loud, of course, but it's one of our favorite subconscious games. Finding people who are a little worse than us. We delight in pointing out the sins and shortcomings of others, not so much because we enjoy just bringing other people down, but because subconsciously we hope to divert everyone's attention from us. The problem isn't us, we're shouting to the world, it's them. Unfortunately, the Bible says something differently entirely. Those few little quotes I read you from the wisdom of Solomon juxtaposed nicely with what Paul writes to the Romans. I'm going to start reading you a little bit from Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Here's what Paul writes. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I should have counted it. Did you hear how many times I said the word they and them just then? They, they, they. They sound like really bad people. And so far, St. Paul's Jewish readers would have been tracking right along with this. This would have been exactly what they were used to hearing, what they were expecting to hear. Paul talking about them, and everyone would have assumed that these were those same Gentile idolaters, Paul talking about a them and how sinful they are. But Paul is pulling a fast one here. Paul is planting a trap. He is setting his readers up because just when everyone is settling in for some nice finger pointing about them, Paul ruins everything. It's Romans chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You practice the very same things. The they's of that first section have now changed to you's. And this is the insight I got from my friend's dissertation. The accusations that were aimed at them have now been pointed at you. And so the terrible truth comes out. We are them. God's law finds everyone wanting. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. We, it turns out, are the ones who suppress the truth. We are the ones who do not honor God. We are the ones who don't give enough thanks to him. We are the foolish ones who exchange the glory of the immortal God for things like statues, status, 
success, satisfaction, self-sufficiency. We are the idolaters, worshiping things that always leave us feeling empty. In our gospel lesson this morning from Mark chapter 6, Jesus sees a large crowd and he has compassion on them. He compares them to sheep without a shepherd. That's us. No doubt, some in that crowd were looking around and thinking that they were somehow separate from it, above it, set apart from it, that they were better, that they were unique, not like the rest of those people. But Jesus looks at the crowd and sees that in this profound way, everyone is the same. They all need a shepherd. They are all lost. They all need saving. And this is how the dividing wall of hostility that St. Paul refers to in Ephesians comes down. He's writing to Jew and Gentile, struggling to see themselves as one new people under Christ. And so his strategy to unify them is to remind them of what Jesus did to accomplish their salvation. He reminds them who their shepherd is and what their shepherd has done for them. Jesus, says Paul, reconciled both groups to God in one body through the cross. The cross is the great end of our ability to find someone a little bit worse than us. The cross is the great end of our ability to trumpet our own achievements. The cross is the great end of our ability to claim any identity of our own. The cross is the end of you altogether. At the cross, we are put to death, crucified with Christ, the scripture says. The you who might categorize yourself according to us and them, is dead. So, is there any good news for us? Well, yes, Jesus was alive. New life has been won for everyone in his name. Jesus came, and as we read, proclaimed peace to you who were far off and to you who were near. That's peace for us and them. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Now this is incredible sounding. But this is even more incredible than it sounds. The us who would claim our own identity is dead, but we have been given new life, a new identity in Christ that makes us one with every other believer. Through Jesus, Paul tells the Ephesians, we, that's both us and them, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Elwood Blues was right. No matter what we do to live, thrive, and survive, there are some things that make us all the same. You and me and them. First, we are united in our need for Jesus. 
And finally, we are united in our new lives in him. In Jesus' final moments, hanging on the cross, that cross that would be the end of all this hostility, we read that he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. That's Matthew 27. And it immediately follows the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me that we talked about last week. After the holy, judging, plumb line carrying God has turned his back on his own son, the Savior who now has the sins of the whole world on his shoulders, Jesus' spirit leaves his body, goes immediately to the temple and tears the veil that protected the Holy of Holies from the unholy rabble outside, tears that veil in two. The traditional separation between unholy people and a holy God was destroyed. And we now have access to a God who, were he to judge us according to our behavior, should have nothing to do with us. Jesus Christ has broken down the wall of sin that separates us from our creator. And so we have access, not because of anything about us, but because of everything accomplished for us by Jesus Christ. We are now Jew and Gentile, man and woman, rich and poor, every tongue, tribe and nation welcomed into the family of God in one spirit. All dividing walls between us have come down on account of Jesus Christ. In the eyes of God, now, because of Christ, we are the same. In fact, we were the same, sheep without a shepherd, and we are the same, made one in Christ. One in our sin and one in our redemption. So, now, action items. Now, let us confess our sin, our predilection to seek out a them, the people who are a little bit worse than us. Let us hold fast to our redemption, remembering what our shepherd has done for us, living for us, dying for us, rising to new life for us. Because of Christ's accomplishment, on account of his sacrifice for us, we unholy people are reconciled to a holy God. Let us eat and drink together of his body and blood broken and shed for us, And for them, for all of us. Indeed, now there is no us and them. We were all sheep without a shepherd. And now we are all sheep with a shepherd. A good shepherd. For without Jesus, you could never get to God. Now in Christ, God comes to you. No matter who you are. Now, You are his. Amen.